Boss Boyle and the Importance of Work, Part 2. P worked until it was dark, and he worked beyond the settled darkness until he was hungry. He had found a bucket and a few shapes of soap within the bucket, and had supposed, as now he would, that they were for washing up after labor. The cold river refreshed him, and the soap, high and lie, stung a little, especially his eyes. The cottage of Boss Boyle was lit, as he saw when he emerged from the pit. It was, in fact, the only light in the place. The central ornamental lamp of the captive maiden was the principal, though not sole, source of light to the cottage. When he stood at the open door of the dwelling, not stepping beyond the threshold because his feet were soiled, he saw before him such a fine carpet upon the floor within the lamplight cast from the table. He did not at first see her lying on the bed, but spoke to Boyle, who sat backwards astride a chair, his arms crossed upon the back of it, facing her from the end of the bed. Boss, said P, would you loan me a dollar or two for my meals until I can be paid? Mrs. O, who lay outstretched upon the bed, with her head upon its high-piled numerous silk cloth pillows, her arms draped upon the pillows above her head in indulgent languor, her golden hair unfastened, spread luxuriously beneath their graceful pose, three buttons of her gown opened at her throat, sat up, and laughed. Boyle grinned at her, and did not look at P, but said simply, "'Cover your privates, man,' and Boyle laughed, as Mrs. O averted her eyes and covered her amusement with her hands. P cupped his hands before his genitals, and Boyle turned to look at him disapprovingly. "'Take five from the drawer at the counter. "'If you take more, I'll know it. "'I will deduct it from your pay Saturday.' P found his clothing in the dark "'and listened to them laugh and converse as he dressed, "'and having found the money went into town "'to the saloon at Emory in French "'and bought himself a couple pickled eggs "'and a cold beer for his first supper in town. "'When he got back to the office,' It was dark in Boyle's cottage. He got his cot and set it in the outer office, opened the door for ventilation, and went to sleep. It was on the following day that he would see her and Mr. O again on the catwalk, as we have related, just before dinner time. He washed and climbed the stairways out of the pit shortly after. This time, he left his clothing on the floor beside the entrance to the pit, and he put them on before he went up and into the office space. There was no one in the office. The cottage door was closed. It was dark within. P. took his dinner time to shop for some potatoes, beans, bacon, and such to provide his staple diet. Not able to afford meals at taverns or restaurants like Mr. Boyle seemed to make his customary repast. As he came back from the general store, which he found, carrying his packaged goods, 
Returning to the factory, he saw Boyle with Mr. and Mrs. O. at the pier, before the steamboat, the Adonis, addressing its burly, berwhiskered, blue-coated captain. He paused to admire the steamship and its handsomely dressed patrons. Mrs. O. was dressed in the same or similar white gown and the same or similar broad-brimmed feathered hat as he had seen her wear before, but this time carried a white silk parasol with frilly fringe that flashed, and she toyed with its handle, spinning the parasol playfully upon her shoulder. Mr. O. stretched himself to his height to kiss his wife's lips, then vigorously shook Boyle's right hand and turned and boarded the Adonis with its captain. Boyle and Mrs. O. turned away together to rise up the ramp from the pier. Boyle saw P. looking down at them, and P. felt he must have overstayed his work break. Back in the office, P. unpacked and broke a loaf of bread for lunch and descended the staircase nude, returning to his work in the hot pit. That evening, as he ascended the stairs to the office and dressed himself in the dark beneath the stoop of Boyle's cottage, he heard Boyle speaking, reciting, or reading verse. His easy, mellifluous voice seemed luminous as a soft and amber candlelight showed from the cottage windows in squares upon the floor. P. paused as Boyle warmly embraced his poem, a song of senses, a musical seduction, caressing her who must stand in expression of its very words behind these curtained windows. When as in silks my Camille goes, then, then, methinks how sweetly flows that liquefaction of her clothes. Next, when I cast mine eyes and see that brave vibration each way free, oh, how that glittering taketh me. There followed this, a woman's soft, delighted laugh, a throaty laugh of whiskey and cigarettes, P surmised, of some one of those Low women who haunted the saloon, he supposed, like that waitress whom he had seen boil, grope, and tease. In the days that followed, each evening that he came up the stairs, he heard boil and one of these women in embrace or play. Sometimes he paused to listen and recalled such moments with his wife. Sometimes he discreetly departed. But it was... The strange aroma, the perfume of the air that surrounded him as he stood near the windows. It was the scent of a woman. One woman. The same woman, he must suppose. This must not be several women come to him, thought P. Though in the town he had witnessed Boyle archly winking, coyly teasing, surreptitiously fondling many a wife or woman or girl. No limit to his tastes or inclinations, it seemed. No barrier by age or beauty, though he preferred the maturity of the married ones, it seemed. 
Boyle was as randy as a boar, it seemed, and his randy nature, rather than disgusting these women, seemed to amuse them. His attentions, even when obscene, were humorously and playfully regarded. But this one perfume, the scent of the one woman, a woman that Boyle loved, perhaps, it was familiar to P. But there was also, within that scent, another floral color, a deeper, denser color, a pungent, thickly sweetened flavor, like a syrup upon a sugar. He did not recognize this at all, and it hung persistently like a smoke in the air. It was still there even in the morning when she was gone. At least he always supposed that she was gone. He was not sure, though he never heard anyone in the cottage, but found the door always shut, and so could not be certain. Then the morning after more than a week of work, the last of September, as he would recall, he found, when he went to put the folded cot beside the safe, that the door to the cottage was open, and that the ornamental lamp on the table was lit. Before he undressed to go to the pit, he decided he would look within the room. He was not certain to find anyone, but if he did, then he should know who she was. He found no one. But now alone in the room, and Boyle known to be absent for the morning, he leisured to view the room thoroughly in its entirety. It was as richly appointed as a fine mansion, like a faithful replication of such rooms as such very wealthy persons possess, at least as he imagined they should be, or at least like the luxury suites that he had seen featured once in stereoscope and stereoscopic cards set out for trade passengers on the Adonis when he first came here. Just like such a luxury suite, Boyle's floor was upholstered wall to wall with a rich oriental carpet, surrounded by walls of darkly stained oak wainscot below wine-colored embossed velvet wallpaper. Bookshelves containing gold-leaf books balanced the space, Two alabaster statues of demi-nude maidens beside these stood upon marble pedestals. Another smaller pair of alabaster satyrs framed the entrance where he stood. An enormous spray of ostrich fern stood in one corner. Small oil paintings of French pastorals arrayed the empty wall to his left and to his right over the bed was a large oil of an obsidian nude reclining upon a sofa. Beneath that painting, the great feather bed, sumptuously clothed on a high frame with head and foot balustrades of highly polished brass pipe and scrolled piping. Across its fine open white bed linen lay a woman's exquisite Chinese silk robe, or so he supposed this to be, 
my other stereoscopes he had seen. Beside the bed, on a mahogany nightstand, was set out an ebony tray. A coiled dragon, inlaid by design with mother of pearl and carnelian, a serpent of muscle and mysticism, shimmering obalescent and blood-red against the black, glossy lacquer. And on top of this tray lay a long, cloisonne lacquered pipe with a small, tacky glass bowl and a smoky glass chimney was placed beside it, as well as many instruments which he did not recognize. And beside these was a short, uncovered, hexagonal glass jar of something fragrant and tar-like, its pewter lid beside it. Upon the middle of the bed was an opened book, laid face down, opened to pages at which someone had stopped reading. He picked it up, and holding the place to which it was open with his finger, this is the passage that he read. She dropped her blanket and kneeled on the clay hearth, holding her head to the fire and shaking her hair to dry it. He watched the beautiful curving drop of her haunches. That fascinated him today. How it sloped with the rich downslope of the heavy roundness of her buttocks, and in between folded in the secret warmth the secret entrances. He stroked her tail with his hand, long and subtly taking in the curves of the globe fullness. Thou's got a nice tail on thee, he said, in the throaty, caressive dialect. Thou's got the nicest arse of anybody. It's the nicest, nicest woman's arse as is. In every bit at it is a woman. Woman sure is nuts. Art not one of them button arse lasses as should be lads art or thou's got real soft sloping bottom on thee as a man loves in his guts. It's a bottom as could hold the world up it is. All the while he spoke he exquisitely stroked the rounded tail till it seemed as if a slippery sort of fire came from it within his hands, and his fingertips touched the two secret openings to her body time after time with a soft little brush of fire. And if thou shits, and if thou pisses, I'm glad. I don't want a woman as could not shit nor piss. She could not help a sudden snort of astonished laughter, but he went on unmoved. Thou'rt real, thou art. Thou art real, even a bit of a bitch. Here thou shits, and here thou pisses, and I lay my hand on em both, and like thee for it. I like thee for it. Thou's got a proper woman's arse, proud of itself. It's none ashamed of itself. This is nah. He laid his hand close and firm, over her secret places in a kind of close greeting. I like it, he said. 
I like it, and if I only live ten minutes and stroked thy arse and got to know it, I should reckon I'd lived one life, certain. Industrial system or not, here's one of my lifetimes. She turned round and climbed into his lap, clinging to him. Kiss me, she whispered. As he put the book down, he looked into its title page, and on its inside cover, he found an ornamental bookplate had been pasted there, and there upon its face, in her own refined script, was her own name writ, Camille O. Each night thereafter, as he stood naked or dressing, Listening to them and their intimacies, he imagined her. The scent that he had recognized was that which she wore. The one that eclipsed it was that of the opium which she and perhaps Boyle smoked together. He knew of opium only by limited experience and by some things he had heard. And what he knew was mostly concerning that opium which is not smoked, but that which physicians give to women when they are hysterical, which was a bottle distillation, that which may be found in any pharmacy for the asking. It is also often taken for pain because of incurable cancer, he knew. But this opium that she smoked was obtained by Boyle, no doubt, from the Chinamen who worked on the railroads that were trekking northward from the town, and which had only recently arrived in this place. P. knew little of the progress of such pleasure or its addiction. He had heard of the compulsion. He had heard of the lascivious appetite of women of such addictions. He had himself known women whose addiction had made them skeletal and despairing and corpse-like in their appearance. Often now Camille was tearful and pleaded against Boyle's enormous and indefatigable desires. She seemed more and more unhappy and reluctant in his embrace, he believed. Yet he keenly abused her goaded her, cloyed her, wheedled her sexually, and lured her, teased her, and defeated her with opiate pleasures. He commanded her by such sexual and opiate exhaustion to any submission that he wished. It was the day after one such torrid night that she had been crying inconsolably, and he had slapped her so that she gasped and he had toyed her, physically teased her, and degraded her with such filthy instructions that P. could not restrain himself but felt he must inquire, must seek to help her if he may. In the morning he had considered rationally that he should not interfere. He had seen the door to the cottage open, the lamp light lit, and had proceeded with his sober self to the descent of the pit, but had in fact undressed and was on the catwalk when he instinctively reversed himself thinking he must see that she was not hurt. 
It was such impulsive simplicity that should explain that he entered the room naked, rather than other motives. He thought of her with worry. She was the finest, most elegant woman that he had ever met, and he loathed Boyle for what he did to her. He had seen his mother die of laudanum and cancer, and he loathed both laudanum and cancer. This is what he thought when he thought of her. She lay in the tousled bed linens with only a leg partially beneath the top sheet in her Chinese silk robe, which was fallen away to one side, and he saw her long leg, her flank, the swell of her belly, and her navel, and the full length of her naked body, and one of her breasts exposed to him. Her nipple, small like a red raspberry, on a skin that was the color of ice cream. She saw him immediately as he entered, and she smiled dreamily at him. He still felt unconscious of his own nakedness as he approached her until reaching the bed standing beside her and speaking her name, Camille. She reached out for him and touched his penis, and feeling her touch, her fondling, he became aroused. Camille, he repeated, and lifted the robe away from her body and looked upon her nakedness, her other breast, both breasts, belly, her blonde pubis, the plump cleft he saw, and she smiled at him. She had tears in her eyes. He asked, why do you cry? Please, she said, yes. She moved her legs so that he could kneel between them. She drew him with her small hand upon the back of his neck to guide him to bring his mouth to her mouth. He laid on her and she was cool and her mouth tasted of cream and he saw her eyes did not close as he entered her. He looked at her as he quickly spent his seed inside of her and she felt it. After he had given himself to her, he rested on her, stroking her face, and she was not crying any longer, but her eyes were moist, and she seemed deeply saddened. He asked her, Why do you let him? Why don't you go home? She embraced him. She kissed him, as he remembered only his wife having ever kissed him. And holding his head to her bosom, she told him that he did not understand. This is hurting you, P said to her. I know, she said, and nothing more was said. They made love almost immediately a second time. She was wind if his wife was earth, he thought. She was the embrace of clear light and scents, if his wife was the embrace of deep woods and warmth. And if his wife was she who gave him meals, made his bread, kept his bed, Camille was the wild in the rushes, 
was creek water running after snow melt. First flesh of fresh flowers. And if his wife was she who bore his children, Camille refreshed him to his own childhood. And for the moment in his arms, in the scent of grasses, in the whispers of winds, in the racing waters, she was with him as when he was a child, she a child too. But this is a moment like a meteor. When he got up from her, she did not cover herself, but looked upon him happily as he gazed again upon her nakedness so different than that of his wife, incomparable. Having taken this woman, he would forever believe that no two women are the same in body or soul, each in infinitely detailed differences so unique and inexpressible. He went to the pit, he thought of her as he worked. When he returned for dinner at noon, she was gone. The door was shut. The cottage was dark. He ate alone in the front office, looking out the front door, which he kept open for the ventilation. He stood in the doorway naked, and those in the lumber yard thought he must have gone crazy with the heat. What of the moon? There is water at the bottom of the ocean. Move the water, carry the water. Move the water from the bottom.